Hi, and welcome back to Beyond All My Expectations. It's your girl, Nikki, and I'm here with Sarah Ozori-Rabble, or Books and Wines, depending on how you know her. Hi, Sarah. Hey. How are you doing today? Fabulous, so fabulous, fabulous, fabulous. Hello, everybody. <laughs> Hi, I love, you know, the different octaves of singing there. We'd love to see it. We'd love to hear it. Um, you look very colourful today. I'm loving, you know, the outfit. Thank you. Thank you. Lockdown was trying to kick our backside, but we prevail and we rebel. Well, not rebel against the government lockdown, but rebel against the mental control yeah. of lockdown on us through yeah. our bright outfits. We do, we do. And I'm so glad the sun's back out because I feel like I'm now dressing up a bit more. I mean, I'm still wearing a lot of black, but I'm like, okay, a sundress, you know, here or there, even inside the house. Because I think most of winter, I just got into like tracksuit bottoms. It was, I was like, oh, no one cares. Like, they should just be glad I'm showing up. But now I'm like, actually, you know what, show up. Like, show up as you, you know. It's been quite changed. Now, we have to just talk about your background, so what's going on behind you, because it is the bookshelf of dreams. So I have had the pleasure of seeing Sarah's bookshelf many times over on Instagram. We're going to talk more about this. It truly is the book, I don't know what to call it, a library, conglomerate. Like, what do wow. we call this? It is, it's fantastic. Like, just... All of these books, what's going on behind you? Do you know what it is? I building a personally curated library that satisfies my tastes, my curiosity and my interests. That's it. It includes books from predominantly books by writers of African descent from the continent in the diaspora in the Caribbean. I'm trying to get more into books written by South American authors. Alas, je ne comprends pas. Spanish. Why did I just use French to say I don't speak I was, Spanish? I was going to say, honey, uh, your languages are they're disparate, you know, sides of the map here. The language is not languaging. They're not at all. Not at all. Alas, I don't speak Spanish, but I'm I'm hoping to discuss to get into more Afro Latin writers. Yeah. So my library is just me curating backlist classical texts by African writers, classical texts by African American writers, and yeah, any work that catches my interest. Yeah, and I can see right behind Sarah, just right behind her is, and I have to be, you know, the vice person here. As you know, I work with Wasaba Republic Press as the Italian audience developer manager, and there is just a stack of Kasawa Republic books right there. And it's very pleasing to my eyes, I'm gonna say. I feel just joyous to see this. It's a good space, you know, to have your books feature because it's some fantastic books. So you can do a quick cheeky plug here. So if you've never read Kasava, read Kasava. Just pick up any book, a children's book, a YA book, a crime, a short story, a fiction, a nonfiction, you're gonna have a great time. So we've spoken about what's going on behind you. So I think it's the perfect time for you to introduce yourself to all of us so who is Sarah slash books and rhymes or and or basically <laughs> hello fabulous people my name is Sarah Ozo Irabo and I am the person behind books and rhymes the Instagram page the podcasts and anything else and everywhere you see <laughs> you see all me places and books and rhymes is stocks you know <laughs> <laughs> So what what do I do? Why am I in the literary space? And what is Books and Rhymes about? Well, Books and Rhymes is a podcast. I use music to open up pertinent dialogues about books. I invite guests to pair books with songs or albums that spark the same emotional connection and use those songs to deep dive into the books that we are talking about. But not only that, I also use the music that they selected to really bring readers into the back end 
of how books come to being, from when they are an idea in the author's mind to the acquisition process, to the ex the writer's experience in getting the books published, to when the book is finally in the market. How do you then get your book into the hand of readers? And when they get into the hand of readers, how do these readers receive the book, especially if the book is by a, um, an African writer? How do different readers receive the works and how do these writers feel about this interpretation of the work? So that is literally what it's all about. So if you want to, uh, it sounds like a plug now, but I don't care. It's a plug, in it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we plug ourselves. Love it. No, because I think that we really need to, it's great to talk about books great it is great to talk about themes yes but i think it is even better for us to demystify the publishing industry it's even better for us to go into the the writer's experience in bringing that book to life so that is what the podcast is about in a nutshell you get great playlists at the end of every episode that is curated by the guests and then about me personally why am I in the literary space because i enjoy literature and i enjoy books that inspire books that tickle your senses books that make you feel good books that makes you want to cry and also personally i'm tired of of just the over promotion of negative books by negative books i mean over promotion of themes heavy themes in books mm -hmm. by african writer yo miss me without ish there is a time <laughs> for everything but we human beings are multifaceted our lived yeah. experiences are just the multi i mean we are multi experiential beings you know and so i feel the, the space i'm in right now is to celebrate the pleasure of reading books that makes you feel good and books yeah. that are written exquisitely books that you know that makes you upset but they don't leave you traumatized because yeah. fam, you know let's 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 divest ourselves from you know, having, yeah, you know i would i actually say let's divest ourselves from literary traumatic industrial complex <laughs> oh yeah oh wow <laughs> A phrase, literary traumatic industrial complex, yes, which is, I guess, you know, a space of literature that only turns out a certain trope within the stories that are told about particular cultures, people, identities. So explore that from different dimensions because different people have different experiences of this going on. I think, you know, over the last year, we've seen a rise in books that are just about like racism in a certain way published, particularly within the British publishing space that have been very American. heavy. I mean, the American, I feel like America's been doing it for a longer time, but the, I think in the last year, I feel like I've seen about 10 to 15 books come out in the, just in the UK. So it's been a scary source of churn of these stories. Um, and I felt like this is quite heavy and this is, this is such a limited way of presenting the way we tell stories. I just, yeah, I mean, I look behind Sarah and I'm like, look at what's going on. So why, why are you giving me 15 different stories that are just, the same sort of you know narrative voices thank you so much for that intro sarah love it and now my connection to sarah has been a very long one we met many moons ago <laughs> i can't we at like a conference somewhere many moons ago i was still at university and we sort of kept in touch and we've managed to develop a friendship over the last few years but beyond just the personal friendship i've seen sarah develop her own voice within the literary space that's not within the industry and it, I think it's a very interesting one to talk about because you're not you know in publishing you're not an editor you're not a literary agent none of these things but 
if you bring up books and rhymes, you know, in certain literary spaces, people sit up and pay attention. And I think that is such power to understand how much you love a space and how you want to work in that space and command that space to a point that there's, there's respect for the voice. And obviously this is me, you know, once again, loving on my guests, but if you go on Sarah's, you know, page on social media and you just see the conversations going on, you can, you will understand what I mean by this. So I guess my first question for you is, you know, when you are approaching your literary worlds and your space in the literary industry, why did you diverse from the traditional to do the non-traditional and in the way that you have? I undertook several modules at university. So I read African literature and Caribbean literature at university. And what struck out to me was the fact that all of these conversations were directed and moderated by Caucasians. These Caucasians are telling you which books to read. They're curating the syllabus, curating books you read. Not only are they curating the books you read, they're telling you how to read these books and how to interpret these books. I found that egregious. I thought to myself, or rather I had a personal experience where there was an expression, you know, one of the lecturers made a comment and that comment made no sense to me. It was, that comment was not valid. And I pulled him up on it. And he said to me that, well, in this course, we do not accept anecdotes. If you are going to give any opinions, it has to be based on academic, on, on a scholastic text or a scholastic expression. Fam, mm. I'm new to this course. I haven't read that much. How am I supposed to know? What, how am I supposed to find the counter narrative? That is not white. Because yeah. all, the, um, all the texts that you are providing for us to read are texts by white people, you know? And so that really shaped, and that really, really shaped how I saw the literary space. And that also, going back to what I said about power, mm -hmm. I felt so disempowered, extremely disempowered. And this was the first time in my life I'd ever felt that disempowered. You know, you know I, yeah, like, you know, you know, as you know, one who is born and raised in Nigeria, there's a certain self-assurance you have. And that self-assurance has carried me all for the best part of my life until that particular point in time. And so feeling so extremely disempowered, I thought to myself, never again, I'm never ever going to go into a space or rather, I'm never ever going, going to go into a space just letting go of my strength. That's yeah. what I meant by advertently or inadvertently. Yeah. And so you raise the point that I'm not, I don't work in the literary, in the publishing industry. And that is by on purpose because I don't want my voice to be subsumed by the system. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be beholden to the system. I feel that... Should I decide to work in the literary industry, I feel that I will be less critical. Mm -hmm. I feel that I will self-censure because I have something at stake. And I mm -hmm. don't want to self-censure because the publishing industry is racist to writers of African descent. The publishing industry does not serve the interest of writers of African descent. It doesn't, whether you, it really doesn't. Last year, hashtag publishing paid me was a big thing. That was where we saw the true financial inequalities. But aside from that, if you, if one decides to be a critical reader and a conscientious reader of mm -hmm. backlist 
African literary backlist, you'll find that most of our forebearers works are not in print anymore. Most of them are yeah. out. And so this perpetuates the idea that, or rather, because most of them are out of print, some higgy hagger young 20-something, 15-year-old, whatever, whatever old, not being ages, but it is what it is. Some higgy-haga young person can come and say, oh, I'm the first person to ever talk about this. Yeah, they, have, the they haven't read back. Errors are not platformed and amplified in the same way that the European Anglo-Saxon uh, literary publishing establishment do with their, and lots of their mediocre works that do not stand a candle to that of our forebearers. So I, these are the things that goes on in my mind. And so I, with regards to how I decided to work through this space, yo, think a lot. I ain't feeling to be disempowered, but I'm going to work in a way that is true to who I am. I do not subscribe to the trope of being forever angry. I believe in, I don't know, I just believe in being productive. If you're going to engage in conversation, come, come, come correct and come whole and it is it is that is how i've consciously built books and rhymes and it kind of grew organically through years anyway so yeah yeah i think you know you made so many interesting points and you know points i've been lucky enough to experience myself also because i i remember during my postgrad so my ma in american literature and i took a module on post-colonial literature because I wanted to read African texts because, you know, within the landscape of the UK, it's really hard to get a degree that focuses on, I mean, even it focuses on African literature, it can be a very broad spectrum of doing it, but it's really hard to do, you know, to find one that does, that's not under this, this post-colonial umbrella. And I remember we're reading, you know, we're reading like things like Nervous Conditions and you're reading, you know, you're reading these texts by black authors, but the critical material you're reading, reading um, these texts against, all written by you know white men they're written by lenses of whiteness towards blackness and I'm like but this is this then should not stand as a critical you know perception I remember I, I fighting back against this and and then I realized I was like this is not the way I want to study you know literature from the African continent this is not the way I want to study literature from the Caribbean from South America because if I have to read them always against this gaze you know of whiteness and that's not a fair reading. And what is this doing for me? You know, and it's violent. I it think is. that these things, they are emotionally violent, yeah. psychologically violent. It was the first time I witnessed what emotional and psychological violence and most importantly, intellectual violence felt, looked and sounded like. Because you are told you're not smart enough to engage in this conversation because yeah. they are not having a conversation on a level playing field and they're not having a conversation in a way that humanizes you. Yes. They invaluate, and I say they because that is how black students experience these spaces. They invalidate you. They invalidate your lived experiences by saying that, oh no, because this XYZ scholar has not brought your lived experience into the analysis, it doesn't exist. It's like if, if a tree falls in the forest and a white man doesn't hear it, did it, it really does fall? It all, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That kind of thing. I mean, not to laugh at that, but that's just, that's a wonderful, you know, summation of, yeah, what we're talking about here. Like, who, yeah, who gets to decide that something has happened? Who gets to decide that something is real? Who gets to decide that something has concern? who gets to decide that, you know, this needs to be talked about. And, you know, that is a reflection on the publishing industry. And we saw that happen last year. And we're seeing it happen again because, you know, we're seeing in America this publishing of a police officer's book on the, you know, the murder of Breonna Taylor. But last year it was, you know, 
Black Lives Matter. So it is, it's this constant, like, we are, you know, we'll read your text, but also invalidate, you know, every, like, it's, it's, a, it's a very, very intense and interesting cycle that I think it's going to be a long journey to, I mean, uh, whether through the publishing industries, how we radically we change this, I don't, I don't have those answers. I think that this is why it's important that outliers like myself yeah. exists. It is important that people outside of the system you know, you find ways of empowering yourself outside of the system. Like, you know, every week on IG Live, I do a session called Literary Ancestry where I bridge the gap between yeah. pubs and, um, <laughs> you know. I, I, was gonna, I was coming to that next week. So jump into that. Tell us Literary okay. Ancestry. <laughs> Between past and present literature. Now, this Wednesday, we're talking about, I, I focus specifically on Audrey Lord's The Master's Tool Will Never Dismantle the Master's House. That is such an amazing title and an amazing sentiment because I've observed a lot of things and I'm a watcher. And if you look at the careers of people who have used social media to leverage themselves, use social media to amplify their voices, you know, a lot of these people, they are expressing opinions that have not brought, been brought into popular discourse. They're using yeah. social media to express these opinions. And these opinions resonate with communities who have, to use oppressed parlance, silent, who have been silent or silenced. <laughs> silent. <laughs> so they so through these outliers and through these outliers' use of social media, these silent or silenced <laughs> community and erased you know, systematically erased community yeah. are hearing themselves and are realizing that, oh no, okay, it's not me. I'm not quote unquote paranoid in feeling how I feel. But this is how then, then this is where the system then becomes dangerous. First of all, you are using a tool outside of the master's establishment to speak your mind. And then the master comes and dangles a carrot in front of your, in front of your face. A lot of the times these carrots are so seductive that people let go they don't realize the true power of being autonomous. And that's what I really hope that people recognize the power of autonomy. You may not be getting a lot of money, but yo, the value of being your own decision maker, mm -hmm. the value of having an organic community, the value of being true to yourself, that, that is unquantifiable. There are numerous people I can cite, you know, from now until tomorrow, who actually, case in point, remember the, the chicken connoisseur? the guy who started a YouTube page. Yes. And I, what it did was, to me, revolutionary. It was because, fantastic. Mm. I, it was joyous. I think that's the one. It was so beautiful. It was joyous. And that's the, I think that's the word that sums up what that was. Like, I know people say it's radical, isn't it? But I was like, it was just joyous. And the way you saw the, the swell of just people reacting was a place of joy. And because I think there's something radical about joy and that. So I'm just going to call it that. I'm not even framing it any other way. But I just remember, you know, when he came into our consciousness and it was just like everyone just, you you were just smiling, like mm. like crazily smiling. But the reason I mentioned Chicken Connoisseur is this. The chicken shop yes. has been relegated to a specific community. Mm -hmm. The chicken shop is synonymous with the undesirables why socially undesirables by socially undesirables i mean the people whom the establishment look down on young black yeah. boys because chicken shop is where young black boys young black girls at school that's where they go to get their food and also it is also where disenfranchised people you know chicken shop man is cheap it's yeah. like it's everyone is like ah oh, people look down 
at the chicken shop and what the chicken connoisseur did, even the name chicken connoisseur, he goes to different chicken shops and reviews different chicken shops. He elevated chicken and chips <laughs> to the level of Michelin. <laughs> he was rating, you know, the moistness, the taste, the seasoning, the, crisp. the crispiness Ooh. of the chips, the burger sauce, the wings, how spicy the wings were, and the graphics, the effects. It was so true to his yeah, community. Adding, you know, even the crepe check, like, you know what I mean? Like, that, so it, it was, yeah. Like, when I say joy, I mean joy. Hold on. He even, he wore his his suits. You know, he wore suits to the chicken shop. <laughs> By suits, his church suits to the chicken shop. Yeah, but he was it's recreating so that, like, young student. Yeah, he was re recreating that young boy. Because he's not, you know, he's not a 16 year old person was it but he was recreating that childhood connection to yes. the yes and for the first time in a way i think one thing we don't realize is that somehow somehow we have been conditioned to look for permission to be ourselves yeah and through the chicken connoisseur youtube channel he gave people <laughs> the permission to enjoy chicken and chips and he had such so much power that when he mentions a chicken shop in his YouTube channel, the queue in the chicken shop that he rated highly, the queues in the chicken shop he rated highly were astronomical. And then the reverse is true. A few chicken shop owners were, rather, a few articles were written about chicken shop owners mm -hmm. whose shop <laughs> were adversely affected when oh, it came to the no, but that is that it is it's it's life, it's isn't what it? It is, you know, no, 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 yes, yeah, life. Yeah. I mentioned him in my previous statement because he was doing so well, and then Channel Four came in and gave him a show. The show, so Channel Four, for those who are not familiar with the British um television system, we have five terrestrial TV channels, so it's free, anyone can get it. BBC One Two, Channel Three, ITV, Channel Four, Channel Five. Channel Four is one of the big and well-respected yeah. TV stations. They gave him a show. Bear in mind, he built his audience from talking about chicken. His show was now interviewing black pop culture icons. There is a dissonance there. Yeah. He spent so much time on this Channel 4 project that he's literally, his star just dropped. His ascendancy stopped. People were not watching the Channel 4 show. His YouTube channel went down. It was only recently during the lockdown that he restarted his chicken shop. He restarted a YouTube channel. Yeah. So that's what I say by the system will come to you, dangle a carrot in your face. And the carrot is never always in your best interest. And they'll give you this carrot because we have always been conditioned to seek approval for from a system that does not value us, a system that is committed to further enacting violence on our being. We don't see that. So we just we just gravitate towards them. Oh yes, BBC, mm, oh yeah. You know, I saw that to say that there is something powerful in being an outlier. There is something powerful being, in being autonomous. Recognize your power so that when the establishment comes to you with their carrot, you know and you're better able to negotiate so that you don't lose the core of your being. And so that when they eventually spit you out, which they invariably do, you don't have to go and start from scratch all over again. Perfect. Yeah, perfect example using the chicken shop story because I feel like I see that they've given another chicken shop show to someone else who's a white, white woman. woman. Yeah, so yep. we, you know we saw that idea taken over, and you know uh, the the heart of it, which is you know the young black boy and the connection, has, was also taken out of that show. But there's a different level of success she's getting than he was able to get from a mainstream show 
because again knowing where your audience is and staying true to that authenticity is very important and you mentioned literary ancestry so for you know people who don't know literary ancestry is something that Sarah started over I guess lockdown so started last year about summer maybe I don't know and you know these are weekly sessions where Sarah just brings a stack of again if you're watching this and you see you're seeing like a an eighth of her bookshelf capacity and you know in this frame and she brings a stack of books and talks about how they connect to each other and it's you know talking about motherhood and she connects books you know from uh, the Caribbean from you know all different parts of Africa from you know South America from different like black diasporas and brings them together and looks at how you know storytelling is told and he's you know we've done short stories we've done stories in translation you know you've spoken about yeah motherhood recently you did Audrey Lord recently done like historical fiction and these are very intentional and beautiful sessions I've been privileged to go to you know most of these sessions and what has come out of this isn't just you know you know Sarah's platform growing it is a connection of different readers online like we formed new bonds we formed it off you know that platform space but also Wednesday at 8 p.m there are pe- we're looking forward to it like we are we are dying for it as there was that clip says or asking for it and I mean, one thing that's been amazing has been the consistency of it, because I know this work is not easy to show up every single week and do it in the way that you do with the intellect that you do. But what has really been beautiful is that you have fostered community um, through this space. So if you've never been to a literary ancestry, just go. If you if you are interested in, even if you're very, very vaguely interested in books, it's a beautiful space to be, because you see not just Sarah doing the storytelling, but you see the community building, you see the conversations, you see the jokes, you see the critiques. But beyond that, it's been a safe space for people to critique books, you know, and to talk about literature that we often don't want to critique publicly. This feels like the space that we can do and we can have interesting, clever conversation about why things are not liked because there is nuance lost sometimes when you, you know, go out into the public space. So I think I want to talk a lot more about literary ancestry. What was the decision to start this mode of, engaging with books on Instagram as a platform? So last year, aside from the lockdown, 2020 will forever be memorialised or immortalised as the year white people discovered racism, as far as I'm concerned. So in the wake of George Floyd's murder, people were understandably upset. Mm-hmm. And then I think a few weeks later, Breonna, Ta- Breonna Taylor's murder happened. Yeah, the story came and out. And then... Instagram has always been a cool space for me. I find it to be a trauma-free space. Mm-hmm. Uh, Twitter is a car crash. Twitter, the world is on fire on Twitter all the time. Every and single day, people, every hour of every single day. Uh, Facebook is where people get to go and talk about the conspiracy theories and just spout whatever they want to spout. Instagram is just like, hey, let's talk. Let's, you know, oh yeah, focus on your interests. What I saw on the day, I can't remember either the day, I think it was the day Brianna Taylor died. There was just something. There was a day that all the, it's like white people just woke up and decided that oh my goodness the world is unfair to black people oh no and on instagram every other feed on my post was stacks of books about anti-racism oh yes this book read this book you need to read this now if you're not yes no no no. but it wasn't but i th- there was such a frenzy at that time that yeah. i was whipped into frenzy that I left my house thinking, oh yeah, oh yes, this thing is terrible, racism is terrible. I need to post a book that I've read by an African-American who is talking about the impact of racism on their lives so that I can add my voice to the conversation. Thank God I had to go somewhere that day. So I took the book that I was going to post about, then I went out, fine girl, 
I tried to take pictures of the book. The pictures were not picturing. <laughs> so I can and, and I'd already crafted the yeah, what the post was going to be. Yes. I came back home and then I was like, yes, no, no, no. Come watch me. I'll post. And then my head was like, Sarah, yeah, calm down. Sarah, sit down. Are you well? Are you like, well? What, what, yeah, why? What is your why? Yo, because the thing is, I mean, I am not a reactionary person. I don't. Mm -hmm. I don't go, I don't do fat. I tell people, if you're looking for someone who does who does fat, oh yeah, as in it's not me. You know, in as Dion Warwick said, welcome, bye. <laughs> I don't do fads. And I thought to myself, and I had I started thinking about what these influx of racists. I say racist because even though they are anti-racist, they are emotionally, they're traumatic yeah. for us black people who are seeing these books by white people and your white people discovering that black people write books about racism. It is traumatic because you've had these books on your shelf for years. You just haven't posted about it now. So or I came you past it in the bookshop and you haven't thought it worth spending on. Because no, we no. did hear, we do all the stories we heard of orders of books, you know, in the 500s that were never actually followed through. Yes. There is that, but then there are those who had the books on their shelves for years and mm -hmm. never read them and never even bothered to look at those books until it was not time to take a picture. So all we know is that you took a picture. We don't know that it was yeah. read. But when they posted it on their feed, just every other feed, actually, every, yes, every single feed, racist book, racist book. So I came home and I did a whole, okay, this doesn't make sense. And that day I did an impromptu IG live session. It was my yeah. second ever IG live. I'd been on Instagram for, for a few years now, or Bookstagram, the literary corner of Instagram for a few years now, ready to do IG lives because if you don't have anything to say, be quiet and sit down. <laughs> That's my opinion. So I just did like no announcement, sat with my, with my, my phone and picked, I think I picked like six or seven books from my shelves. And the Instagram session was called Books to Read for Pleasure books to read for pleasure or non-traumatic books because I recognize that if I am feeling this way then I can only imagine what other black people are feeling you know one it's one thing to not be able to engage or not wanting to engage wanting to seek refuge from the deluge of discourse about racism you know state sanctioned deaths of black people it's another thing to actually come to a space that is a safe space for you and also be just confronted mm-hmm by performative allyship. So I did that IG live session and I thought it was just going to be myself and maybe two, three other people. Oh no, I had about 30 people <laughs> join. I was like, oh my God, they're watching yeah, now. <laughs> and after that session, I didn't save because I was like, oh, this is just impromptu. Mm -hmm. After that session, I received DMs, photographs in my DMs a few days later from a few people i think about six seven people sent me photographs to my direct message on instagram with pictures that they pictures of books that they had oh. bought as a result of that ig live session and i said there was one particular friend with whom i started i started having conversation with and for a few of them it was like oh my goodness i hadn't actually we didn't know this book existed before yeah. um we hadn't heard about them this way and then I asked people if they were happy for me to do this every week and they said yes. And once again, if you don't have anything to say, don't speak. And you know, I, I like to be, I like to for me personally, I like to think that if I'm going to engage in conversation, I have a direction with that conversation. And so I thought, okay, given that publishers, especially especially the big five publishers, are always, always, always pushing new releases, and Instagram is awash 
with new releases. Mm-hmm. It is important for me to make connection with new releases and backlist so that we know who the new writers are talking to. Yeah. We can see what the new text we're reading now. We I can see how by or the foundations that are building. Yeah. Yes. And see how they expand from previous conversation. And that's how literary ancestry started. It was just a case of I'm just going to talk about great books that I've read. Even though they're not great, let's have thematic conversations about yeah. this where the dialogue has moved over time. And Nikki Man, I think is the best thing I did during lockdown. <laughs> it's the I best think thing. the best thing is like was I for me it was the best thing because you know, I think what it did was it took a lot of people back to their love of reading. It, you know, because I think you end up on, and Bookstagram is, as um, Sarah said, this corner of Instagram that's just, you know, for people who are very much into their literature and want to post very gorgeous pictures of books. I mean, you want to see some stellar photography and content creation, go to the Bookstagram space on Instagram. But, you know, there is has been a commercialised angle in the last few years because, you know, Bookstagram is, there's a thing called you know, early re- early release copies that you can get. Yeah, the proofs and, you know, you're sent it by publishers and there's sort of a pressure to post it because you've been sent and then it's sort of, you know, Bookstagram then became part of the machine. And the same with the beauty industry has moved, like, so many things. So we understand the influencer, you know, what's it, what do you call it? The <laughs> influencer something, industry. But, you know... A few years ago, you know, the early sort of iterations of, you know, this space was people just sharing what they love to read and sharing, you know, the writers that they've read over and over again or writers who they've been reading for a long time. Um, like for me, I remember like I luckily had the chance to speak to Dorothy Coonson, who I've been reading since I was 12. And I was like this and that was joy for me. So to see that shift in Bookstagram was, you know, very hard. And literally Ancestry just brought us back and said, actually, what what is it? Do, what is it? What's your relationship to reading? And what are your hopes for your journey with books? And I think not that you have to have this very strategic, you know, relationship with reading. But it's like if I'm doing something for pleasure, you know, what does pleasure mean? And also, what does my growth mean in this space? So I think every that you can grow in any space, even the pleasure spaces. And so it was going back and being like, you know, the Amos Tuttlers, you know, the Marriage Harris, you know, and mm-hmm. we're bringing back these books. And if you don't know. I'm talking about, and you've never read the Palm Wine Drinker by Mr. Tola. I need you to read it because it is honestly it's one Surreal, of the most wacky. Absurd. It's just wacky. I think that's the best word to use, and in the best space because he he plays around with language. It's you know it's the pull apart from Marichera also, who's this very controversial Zimbabwean figure who also you know he he wrote his first novel. He wrote in like a two week craze while at Oxford University just before being he was kicked out uh, because he just wasn't conforming. But and so his first if you attempting yeah attempted to burn down a building yes, at Oxford there University. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's I was gonna. I know he was a bit naughty, but actually he he was a bit what there was a lot going on there yeah. in that mental state. So if you ever read his first novel, which whose name actually escapes my mind, right so the House of Hunger. House of Hunger, there we go, because I was thinking House of Stone, I knew it wasn't that, because I know who House of Stone is, <laughs> and House of Hunger, you're confronted by this absolutely just chaotic world, and it's it's doing so much, and it's, you know, political commentary, it's the personal, but you sort of get a sense of his mental space in this book, and so it just took me back to actually, what is what is the joy of reading, what's the pleasure of reading, and you know, in 2020, with everything going on, you know, people suddenly, because I remember getting so many requests from, you know, people I'd gone to school with, or people I'd been like, oh, so what should I be reading? Like, can you send me a list? Can you do this? And I remember, I think it took me about two or three weeks to respond to any of these people's lists. And I was like, and I remember being very conscious of sending them fiction, because I I think nonfiction is great. And there's, there's a space for nonfiction, and it tells you the facts, it tells you the figures. But there's something about what fiction does to telling you the humanity of people. 
I think people do not recognize, you know, because I read a story that's, you know, like the joys of motherhood. And I can read an I can read an article that's the stats and figures of, you know, what happens in the but the way Butchy MHS talks about motherhood in this fictional narrative, it literally breaks you apart to just an understanding of, you know, the humanity of motherhood, not just this motherhood as a figure or as a fact, you know, you know as a, a maternal stat. It's like, okay, there's the humanity, the complexity. So I think literally Anthony just really took us back to that to be like, what is the joy in my reading? And also, I don't have to like everything I read. No. Because we've come no. into this way that, you know, everyone's like, yeah, it's not, I'm just like, yeah, but some books are, and some books are bad, not, and they're bad for so many different reasons. And let, let's talk about it. Let's have fun yeah. in, the, in the critique of books. It doesn't have to be a heated argument. We don't have to call each other names. Let's have fun of discussing why we absolutely hated this book and why we also absolutely loved it at the same time. I think also, for me, one of the things I'm very conscious about with literary ancestry so for those who join the sessions every week there are two sessions there's <laughs> literary ancestry and there is a village meeting the literary ancestry sessions are saved you know they save for posterity so people can go and watch them back the village meetings where we have our no hold bars conversation yes and they're not saved it is a space to say your piece speak your mind about books and also come and get honest opinions about books. Those are not saved for posterity. You have your conversation and you bounce. With both sessions, I what I'm doing intentionally, intentionally is normalizing non-traditional literary discourse. There is a way we have been conditioned to engage in literary criticism mm -hmm. that I feel is performative, can be performative and dishonest. Yeah. emotionally emotionally dishonest i feel or rather i am of the opinion that the way we have been taught to engage in literary discourse is to separate the emotion from the intellect books reading is an emotional undertaking yeah. that is why you hate certain characters that is why you like certain characters that is why you can't stand certain authors because of the way they, re they wrote certain characters because you see reflections of yourselves in those characters to say um, that well, that's all like an example right. here is Kainanet and Chimamanda <laughs> every day yeah. Every yeah. day, I'm going to ask so, her, where is she? <laughs> <laughs> Do you see what I mean? If you are emotionally invested in the story, in the character arcs, and the representation of characters in these texts. Therefore, to tell a person that they can only engage with these works intellectually or dispassionately, that is no, no, no. And so the village meetings where we come and have our fights. <laughs> we come and have a fight. You come and defend your faves. You give your honest opinion about your faves. We talk about the, you know, we talk about the literary space because we are all readers first. So in the village meeting and in the literary ancestry sessions, I am prioritizing the needs of readers. I'm normalizing that it is okay to call yourself a reader because I don't know. Okay, good. You are Nick, you Nikki, you are now within the publishing space. Urgh, anime. No, no, I'm joking. Uh <laughs> So, no, I sold out, guys, but I really did not. I I am in the joyous position of working <laughs> in have a, no, no, one of the most beautiful corners of the publishing industry. I'm I'm truly lucky and blessed. <laughs> it wouldn't be me if I wasn't shady, please. I find that, think about this, for people who are literary practitioners, there are, you know, people are proud to say I'm an editor, I am a writer, I am a, what do you call it? A graphic designer, illustrator, da, 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 da. But I remember telling someone, someone was like, okay, so what do you do? I said, I'm a reader. And they looked at me like, 
Huh? Yes. Normalize telling people that you are a reader. Normalize reading critically. Normalize that. You know, in the same way we have literary critics. It is okay to be a reader. To be like, no, I read books. I read books and I make connections with the books I read. You know, I say that because, yes, we, it's like, Sarah, come on, man. Mm, that's criticism. Yes, okay, criticism. You can engage, write it down. Just read. Normalize calling yourself a reader and normalize centering the readers as opposed to the interpreters of the texts. Normalize it. And I think that once we give, once we platform and amplify readers and say that, yes, I'm a reader. Uh -huh. Oh, yeah. Walk with your chest up high. No matter how high you want to wear your chest, you can wear your chest on top of your head. That's fine. You know, walk with your chest and just say, I'm a reader. Normalize it. Take pride in being a reader. I think that once we do that, once we empower the position of readers, I think that it'll give people more confidence to speak about, to really speak their opinion about books, because I feel that there is some censorship, self-censure, not censorship. There is some censure in how people talk about books, which is why there are two books every time in a village meeting, two books are always coming up that people are like, I was duped into reading that book. And people are always like, oh, books, I would never forgive Bookstagram for making me read, especially one book. I would never forget Bookstagram for making me read that book. Never forgive them. They misled me to read that book. Not because names, readers are not empowered yeah. to speak your opinion. I don't have to talk about the tropes. I don't have to use, you know, I don't have to use, what's the word? Academic, academic expressions and academic phrases to be understood. I can just say, yo, it didn't bang because this character was moving mad. That's fine. Because that's, I'm saving another person from spending yeah. money and time on reading a book that they don't need to read. Yeah. Thank you for that, Sarah. Um, I want to you know, move the conversation over to the podcast because that's the foundation in the sense of books and minds. I think, no, that's, I won't say it's the heart, but it's part of, you know, it's one of the organs of books and minds, basically. I don't know which one, the heart, the lungs, the kidneys, whatever function it serves. And I say this because Books and Rhymes, the podcast, is very clever. It, you know, it gives me, you know, the energy that a dissect gave me where you're like, this is different. This is thought through. This is methodical but it also retains heart you know because I remember you know the first time I listened to if you've noticed to dissect the podcast is someone sitting down and basically just breaking down the samples the histories the melody like the, it's honestly I don't understand how he does it because my god his mind and I remember the first time you know Sarah shared with me the concept of books and rhymes and I was just like wait what I was like we can do that because I think often you know we'd like to we like to talk about things in boxes if I'm talking about literature, let it just be literature. If I'm talking about music, let it just be music. If I'm talking about fashion, let it just be fashion. And Sarah said, no, we're going to bring these thing, two things together. And over the last you know, two seasons, you're listening to authors talk about how music moves through their work and how it's part of it. And, and this is because obviously music is a storytelling you know, format. And we, we saw, I think, again, sometimes we're very reductive about how we talk about it. But thinking about these relationships of what are the sounds that filled your space while you created these worlds that are sometimes you know, very out there sometimes too real sometimes very violent sometimes you know very painful sometimes very soft what was the music that was in this space while these things were happening and the podcast launched and was a success like you know number one on apple on every number one everywhere and it's because we we realized as sarah shown us that oh this is possible we can do this we can you know we can bring the arts together in this very interesting way so just talk to me about you know coming up with the concept for books and rhymes the podcast and you know how you've been able to ex execute it you know in the way that you have over the last two seasons 
the two love of my life are books and music. Well, music first and then books Ooh. or books. I don't know. Both of them play an important role in my life because my early memories are tied to both. So I remember, <laughs> yo, listen, my love affair with music is so interesting that I remember as a young child, you know, growing up and my uh, parents would send me on an errand. So on my road, there was a man who had a beer parlor. So anyone who has lived in Nigeria would know what a beer parlor is. There was a man who had a beer parlor and this in the beer parlor had these big, massive loudspeakers outside the shop and he would play your Oliver, he's an Igbo man, so he played Oliver the Coke, but he would play Sonia Day. And I remember in the year that Shina Peter's Shinamania came out, yo, that song hypnotized me. I would be sent on an errand and this man's shop is on the on the road. Yo, if that song was playing, I would stand outside his shop and dance until that song it's over. That's about 16 minutes long. Yeah, I was gonna say that's a long song. And dance until the song is over and then walk and go to wherever, whatever, and go and complete whatever errand I've been sent. That's how <laughs> that's how obsessed I was with music. My love affair with books was my mom used to send, she used to get ladybird books, can't stand them for me Aww. as a child. So it's just no. a more childhood memory than attachment to Yo. the book. Yeah. No, no, no. She used to get me ladybird books and I was like, nice pretty pictures. That don't make sense to me. But then my aunt dated a guy who was a bookshop seller, who was a bookseller, and he introduced me to Nigerian children's books. And I fell in love because those books were more or less stories that I grew up hearing. Born without a silver spoon. Yes. And Sugar Girl, Sugar Girl yes. stayed with me. Yes. Dizzy Angel stayed with what? The mm -hmm. something, something in the land of shadows was. Yes. Those books were the one. Anywho, so many years later, I undertook my course, as I mentioned earlier, in African Caribbean literature. And then in the course, I realized that we're not talking enough about the books that were introduced to scholastic spaces. And I realized that the books by African writers have been institutionalized. Yes. Meaning that they are books, these books are not promoted as something to be read for pleasure, something to be read for pleasure. It's very serious. It's, you know, yes. you have, yeah, they are you to be in a certain way. Yes. Yes. You are meant to read them as literature and dissect them and analyze them. You da -da 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 -da. But then, as a Nigerian in Britain, I was like, these books are great. These books fill the gap, you know, because, you know, when you are away from home, you feel some sort of sense of alienation, right? These books, they fill that gap. They are home. They give you a lovely taste of home. So I started my page on Instagram. And also, I hate the term when people use the term African, da 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 da, da because I think that we're not a homogenous people. Africans are monolithic, and Africa is not a homogenous space. So my Instagram page was first titled some African something, something, something. My dear, three days later, I was like, are you well? Are you, are you, are you? It doesn't right? tell, yeah. Change that name. Change it right now. Literally, this is me telling myself off in my mind. In my mind. And so I thought, once again, I thought to myself, what are my two loves and books and music? And I was like, rhymes. Ah, books and rhymes. Yeah. That was how books and rhymes was born. And then I think that same year, I went to Africa Rights Conference. No. Oh. No, I think previously, preceding that, I went to Africa Rights Conference, uh, a yearly festival in London that's taking place also in July, always in the first weekend in July. I went and Sarah Ladipo Manyinka, the author of Independence, she was talk, she was invited to speak on a, on a panel. The panel was titled Books That Inspire. 
Mm-hmm. Akala was there. Yewande Omotosho was there. And there was another scholar, another writer who was there. Sarah Ladipomaninka did something that just did something in my mind that I didn't realize uh, then. But she picked a book and she paired the book with songs. I was Ooh. like, and so she talked about the book and she'll be like, okay, but I did something different today. So I decided to pair this book with this song. I, okay. I was like, oh, and she gave her reasons. That was part in my mind. And then I now decided that, oh, I want to start a podcast. Met a friend who had a podcast company. She did da 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 And then, if you, I don't know, it kind of like, I was like, Sarah, please, I beg, you stole this idea. You stole the idea from Sarah Ladipa How can you just be a TV, TV, Jan Koriko? How are you, shame? Walking around this England street with no shame. Just anyhow, anyhow, anyhow. So I realized in retrospect that I got the idea from Sarah Ladipa so this is me officially, not officially, but because I'd already given her credit, I'd already thanked her. Yeah. I spoke to her at an event that I saw and I was like, you inspired my podcast. I love you. Come on my podcast. And she did. And also Sarah, Sarah Ladipa Maninka. She's published by Kasabra Public Press. And yes, yes. I recommend everyone. Everybody needs to read like a mule bringing ice cream to the sun. You need to read that book because that book is, it will restore you. It will make you think differently about love, about life. And she centers except something-year-old woman who's living life on her own terms. And in that book, Sarah Ladipa Maninka shows you the kind of future that is possible for you as an elderly mm. person. That's what I'm going to say. Stunning book. Anywho. So um, beautiful. So, uh? <laughs> I said so beautiful. Not bicycle. So beautiful. <laughs> amazing. So I'm thankful to her. So, so yes, so Books and Rhymes came as a result of my two loves, but also Sarah Ladipa Maninka was the one who, through that talk, gave me a vision of what was possible. Mm-hmm. And when I get in touch with guests, I try to tell them that we use music to, you know, to find out what their inspiration are for writing the books, to unpack the theme of the book, and also to explore the process of getting the books published. But the most important thing that I hope that I do on the platform, I keep saying I hope because you never know if you meet your criteria or if you meet your vision, except when your consumers or your audience tells you how it impacts them. So with the podcast, what I, with Books and Rhymes, the podcast, what I want to do is to give guests, authors and readers the room to talk about the power of literature, the power of books on them. But beyond that, I also want to rightly weave the experiential and the fictional together. And I also want to, in in a world, whether we like it or not, a lot of us, well, I live in the UK, and a lot of our reality is designed by Anglo-Saxons. The media we watch, the kinds of book that, that we have access to, the decision makers are white and so with the podcast i really want to through the medium of music give guests the room to talk up to just talk just talk let books take the center stage but also let music the reason why the music i for me is important is that it makes it even sweeter and less formal because I mean, music for me is, I think people say that food and music are the two things that stick in your mind. When yeah. you when you think, every time we think back to memory, you always remember the food you were eating or the music you were listening to. Yeah. And so I want to sort of anchor people's experience of these books and of these authors with music. But I also want to, 
I want to introduce people to the authors as someone whom you know intimately and personally. And so the conversations are, are warm. They are honest, they are friendly, and yes, they are very critical because I do ask critical questions, but I do them in a place that is not antagonistic because I don't, I, you know, it's not antagonistic. It is with the spirit of understanding. I'm curious and I want to understand. I really want to understand you. I want to understand how you do what you do, and I want to understand why you are able to do what you do because a lot of what authors do are gifts to us and we're eternally grateful for it, yeah beautiful we're just gonna round up this section of questions there because i think you know that description of what books and rhymes the podcast is is true and honestly you know paying back to sarah ladipal manika who also authors independent which is also you know a very very i won't say necessary read but you know what live your life and read that book okay so i'm gonna frame it that way <laughs> it's really great and um, we're going to move on to something called what's hot in industry. And I'm moving on to this now um, because I want to ask you about you know, the podcasting industry and your hopes in this space. So, you know, we're seeing the pod- the valuations of podcasting industry, you know, going into the billions in terms of the investment going in and the returns for podcasters. You know, you know, advertising is almost about 400 million pounds. I mean, we're still catching up a lot to America, but that revenue generation is going up. In terms of being a player in the space, how do you look at the monetary possibilities versus your creative connection to what you're doing? And how are you balancing these two, if at all? That's a really good question, because it's a question I ask myself all the time. I find that there is a correlation, a positive or a negative correlation. Creatives are not always the best at making money because you create out of love. But that is true. But also, I, I don't want to compromise my art and my platform for the purpose of making money i don't know i i wrestled with that all the time i wrestle with monetizing my platform i i wrestle with i always think about you know not sacrifice my integrity yeah for the purpose of monetizing and and my brain is sort of stuck there and i i haven't actively i haven't actively looked into how to make my platform generate income. I have been approached. There are people who have sent me emails requesting that I, for my rates on talking, they've requested for my rates and they've asked me to speak about their products on the podcast. But I always ask myself, okay, I find that if I speak about a product on the podcast, I'm endorsing that product. Do I yeah. believe in the product that I'm endorsing? So I'm I'm wrestling <laughs> with my conscience i'm wrestling with the question of integrity and how does integrity and capitalism how do they sit well together that's what i'm wrestling with at the moment but that is as far as inserting ads or monetizing the podcast having said that there are other ways that one can monetize one's skill as a literary professional uh, or a literary practitioner I have and I do moderation. So I moderate conversations and I'm paid for it. And that's perfectly fine. And that is outside the remit of the podcast. But they're not mutually exclusive because these commissioners, they see what I do on the podcast and they want me, they like my approach. And and it is for that reason that they commission me to, yeah. So the quick answer to your question is, I haven't really thought about monetizing the podcasts. I haven't explored monetizing the podcast because I am a slow burner. 
I have been intentionally taking my time with books and rhymes to really understand what I'm doing because to me it's so different and because the format is different as well and even though the vision that anchors the podcasts is still the same but the execution is changing over time based on the kinds of conversation that I'm having and mm-hmm. I want to give myself the room to grow I'm very the space I'm in at the moment is be generous with myself and give myself room to grow so that when I do get to where I'm going to, I can I can say, yes, Sarah, well done. Well done. You are here because of the, the fact that you are conscientious yeah. and intentional about how you do what you do, why you do what you do, and for whom you are doing what you do. Thank you so much, Sarah. And finally, my last question, which is, you know, tied back into expectations, because, of course, this is beyond all my expectations, is looking at the communities you're building, you know, through the podcast, through Literary Ancestry, through the Village Meeting, and, you know, even just your platform itself, Books and Rhymes. What, you know, what are your hopes for how this community develops when you look at what's going on now? What do, what do you hope to see, you know, when you look ahead, you know, another... I'm giving everyone six months to a year because I'm, I'm, you know, giving COVID barriers and how we, we think about the future, which I think is important. So what are your hopes and expectations for how you see this community develop? My community or the wider community? Your community. Let's not speak on people we can't control. <laughs> <laughs> the great thing is that my community has already developed and formed its own identity. And for mm-hmm. people who attend the village meeting, you see that my community or rather the books and rhymes community and the people who engage with the books and rhymes platform, they are people with great sense of humor who have a curiosity about reading culture, not necessarily readers, but want to read. And that is it. I believe that my mission is to make reading pleasurable for everybody, right? Introduce you to books that I feel that People who do not read, or rather people who haven't developed a reading culture, is because they haven't been introduced to a book that opens the gateway for them. Mm. In the same way people say that there is a gateway drug. Um, <laughs> the gateway book. You know, there is a gateway book that leads, that introduces people to the joys and pleasure of reading. You know, there's a reason I spent hours in my school library reading Mills and Boons as a teenager, because it was addictive. And it was like, oh, la la, oh, even chess, even bosom, oh, didn't know what it means or what it looks like, but oh, la la. Everything heaving. You know, just heaving, heaving, you know, vulnerable. Oh, she was vulnerable, you know. So my community, the way I, my intent for the Books and Rhymes community is for people to normalise reading backlists normalize being selective about the books you choose to read centering yourself listening to your intuition asking yourself what do I feel like reading at this particular point in time that is my intention and also just celebrating the works of our writers that's it be intentional with your reading listen to yourself listen to your mood when you choose which book to read and celebrate celebrate discover new authors and I'm so pleased because thanks to I also do a book club I started a book club during this year in January called Lit Avengers where we pick two books that talk to each other and we discuss both books and through those sessions people have discovered their new favorite authors they have discovered backlist books and they've discovered new releases or they've been introduced to new releases and that's just what I want to do just spark a curiosity man and 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 just find pleasure, pleasure, and 
comfort and joy and and settlement, even sometimes anger in books, because I am of the opinion that we experience things, but sometimes we don't have the the language to articulate what we're feeling, to articulate what we're seeing, or to, to articulate our feelings about the world around us. We don't have to because a lot of our literary forebearers have done that for us. us, The unfortunate thing is that we don't have people pointing us to those forebearers, pointing us to the works of those forebearers. And that is what literary ancestry does. It signposts you to authors who have spoken about some subjects, some topics and some feelings that you may have. And those authors and those introduction, those introductionary texts, those introductory texts, look at me speaking English, those <laughs> introductory texts becomes your gateway to exploring new authors, new worlds and new genres that you may not have considered previously, but you are now absolutely wholly and unequivocally in love with. Yes. What a response. I actually do want to say this as a little weird story about me so I was also you know one of the people in the school library reading her meals and boons and then yeah, I had the pleasure of going to the University of Reading who has the archives for meals and boons in Harlequin and it was... no, because what it did so this is why I say like you know no reading is a lost in a sense of you'd never know where like that first introductory that gateway book is going to take you because I remember sitting in the archives and reading and understanding the romance genre as more than just something fly to your flimsy that you know there's there's an art to the romance genre I mean and I'm not saying like Mills and Boons like some books obviously throw away nonsenses but it was an interesting connection to go back to like my redacted age self because I was definitely too young to be reading some of these texts and to my 20 something year old self and bringing these connections back and saying oh actually this is interesting to think about this genre from and this is to say like you know the critical angle isn't always wasted to think about it and say okay this is what this means these are you know these are the stories that were told through this genre because i remember learning about certain female issues through meals and boons you know i remember learning about things like reproduction uh, reproductory um issues so they all it made me think about it critically which means again so there's nothing wasted i guess in the reading and your gateway <laughs> book also doesn't have to be this and i'm going to do classic no, it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be a, a, the canon, whatever that means. No. Find something that brings you joy in reading and just go from there. Yeah. You know, the, the crime genre is fantastic. That, so whatever it is you like, go into that and just bring yourself into it. Don't bring other opinions into it. And don't think like reading has to, don't decide that there's a way reading must look like. And that's really, really yeah. important. Read audiobooks. If you prefer sounds, audiobooks are yeah, fantastic. Yeah. If you don't read, like, read you know, children's papers, stories. Yes. You know, read ebooks. Yeah. Um, read middle I, grade YA. Yes. Do you know when you were speaking about Mills and Boons? I would thank Mills and Boons a lot because Mills and Boons really helped my vocabulary. I didn't realize that. Yeah. My vocabulary as a teenager was, yes, it was spectacular because of the words and the yeah. thing about Milton Boots I feel that they recycle the same words over and over I mean hankering you know, there's always a hankering after something there's a quiver moaning oh. groaning vulnerable you know heaving and all of that you you know so you find that you are being introduced and you know you know to learn something something has been repeated yeah. numerous times for you to actually get it and so with those books even though they're not highbrow they have value you are acquiring something from those books even if it's not 
Yes, even if it's not like immediate, enjoy. You learn different ways to express yourself. You learn how other people express themselves. It just, I find that reading personally, I find that reading makes one more emotionally intelligent and more socially aware. That is my opinion. And just read, read what you like, read what you enjoy. But more importantly, read and listen to other people. Don't just read and be stuck in your own opinion. Listen yeah. to other people. And if you want to engage in conversation, oh yeah, engage. If you want to, oh yeah, debate, oh yeah, debate with them. But just read. But I say, for me, I feel that my primary mission is to encourage people to read for pleasure. That's it. Read for pleasure and read for joy. That's it. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today, Sarah. As always, it's been a pleasure speaking to you and you at this level, speaking to you at this level has been um, a joy for me. So to close out the show, I'm just going to ask you to tell everyone where they can find you online, not offline because we don't do that, but <laughs> where can they find you online? So you can find me online at Books and Rhymes, B-O-O-K-S-A-N-D-R-H-Y-M-E-S on Instagram and on Twitter. That's where, And you can listen to the podcast, Books Ampersand Rhymes. So the and is the ampersand, you know that? Yeah, yeah, involved. yeah, girl, we know. So books we hope. <laughs> Ampersand Rhymes, the podcast, just search for it anywhere and you'll find it. But Follow me on Instagram. I, I'm not really active. Well, I, yeah, Twitter, Wednesday, Twitter is mad. Yes, but every Wednesday, you can find Sarah on Instagram. <laughs> yes. now. Uh, is it 7 p.m. GMT? Every Wednesday, Literary Ancestry on Instagram. It is It's a really, really great. I really enjoy doing it because it is such a great session, great conversations. And for me, I'm super thankful because I've seen that I've seen the community actually become a community. By yeah, that, yeah. I mean people have actually become friends with each other just from attending the Literary Ancestry sessions. We now have a community of friends. It's just, yeah. it's wonderful. I just, I to witness it and to experience it is just, it's amazing. It is, for me, I'm really thankful because it is the antithesis to what we have been told social media is. Yeah. Supportive group a group, like-minded group, we disagree with each other. We disagree all the time, but Heavy. we disagree hilariously with each other. But we love and support each other. And that is the most important thing for me. And I'm extremely grateful to God for it. So yeah, so books and rhymes on Twitter and Instagram and listen to the podcast. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us, Sarah. And thank you for listening. This has been Beyond All My Expectations. And it's Nikki. And see you next episode. Bye.